Yes, Joe. Right. I am going to talk about the causes of the quarrels and what they want and don't have, which it's hard to um, completely identify that, but I think given the context, there's a, a primary thing he's, he's thinking about there. I thought I saw another hand. Yes, Mary Jo. I am going to talk about the harvest of righteousness, and I hope it makes sense. <laughs> Anything else? Well, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day and uh, for the truth of your word and for your goodness uh, toward us, Father. Uh, listening to a sermon last night um, about the many blessings that you give us and how an attitude of gratitude uh, towards you is surely one of the best measures of our relationship with you. So Father, give us gratitude for the many blessings you have given us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to review, because you had a, well, I had a week off. You guys didn't have a week off. I had a week off from teaching. Uh, when we were last here, the first 12 verses of chapter 3 were all about the tongue uh, and our speech and how difficult it is to tame the tongue. Uh, James might even say impossible. And out of one mouth comes praise for God and cursing for those made in his image. And it ought not be that our mouths should be single-minded, not double-minded. If I ever needed evidence of the difficulty of taming the tongue, I received it on the Saturday after I taught about, and it was inspiring, wasn't it? It, it just would have been fortunate if the teacher would have been listening, um, at Lane's basketball game. Now, uh, I'm a former basketball coach, and so I get pretty serious about these basketball games, but I'm usually pretty good. Um, this time, with two of my students sitting next to me and my boss sitting just behind me, I kind of got a little upset about the game. Now, I will say, not in my defense, because you can't defend the defenseless, that the officiating was really deplorable. It just, it just really was. We had two of our starters foul out. My son had four fouls. We've never had anyone foul out, ever. They didn't have anybody with three fouls. I mean, it was just crazy, crazy. So about the time that my son got an offensive rebound with a guy kind of hanging on his back, kind of doing this over his back, no foul, went up to shoot, had a guy go like this on his arm, no foul. A guy got the ball and my son went like this, tweet, he fouled. I stood up. Now, here's the deal. I have a really bad left knee that only bends about this far. So I had it out like this. So I had to get my knee. So it took like five minutes for me to do this. <laughs> and I get here and I think, what am I doing here? <laughs> I guess I'm supposed to stare down the ref like that's really going to scare him. And that's when I realized, you know, this is just really stupid. But I was, you know, I was, that's okay, guys, you can play five on seven. That's okay, you can do it. Now, they won, and they won by 14 points. It was the championship game, and they'd lost to this team twice uh, during the season. There are only two losses. But that's not the point. The point is that I then had to write a note of apology to my, so I wouldn't lose my job. No, because I really sincerely felt it to my boss and say, look, I, I don't know what this Bible teacher was, was thinking, but I, that was indefensible, the way I behaved and the way I yelled. I didn't yell any cuss words, just so you know, but <laughs> I may have thought a few. Um, but uh, 
the tongue is a very difficult thing to control. And sitting next to, in fact, part of the time I had my arm around one of my kindergartners. So I also had to write a note of apology to his mother. <laughs> uh, because it was indefensible. Uh, the tongue is terribly difficult to control. And there is continuity in what James is going to talk about in the second half of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. He's not going to leave the topic completely, even though the word tongue is never in this passage. Much of this week's passage is about wisdom, godly true wisdom, as opposed to worldly false wisdom. And that worldly false wisdom produces, is produced by arrogance or produces arrogance and selfish desires and, uh, and has produced that in James's churches which led to quarrels, much of which had to do with the tongue. That quarreling and that fighting and the way people were using their words with one another. So the topic hasn't necessarily changed. The focus uh, has changed some. There is a common thread um, running through these verses, which is 3.13 to 4.10, and that, that common thread is peace. Um, there, there was a lack of peace uh, within the believing communities that could be traced back to the arrogance and the selfish desires, the selfish, selfish ambition of some of the members of the con congregation. The more things change, <laughs> the more they stay the same. We're going to get the, a peek, a glimpse, into these churches to which James is writing. And it's going to be surprisingly and strikingly contemporary. Um, uh, it, it, he's also going to give them a, a harsh rebuke, probably, possibly the harshest rebuke in the New Testament. Um, now, there are some theologians that say that this is still, that James is still and has been all along writing primarily to leaders. And I taught you guys last time that I think that the words about the tongue were meant for all believers. I believe that's still true. He may have leaders in view here, uh, but I think that th these words were meant for every follower of Jesus Christ. When, when James begins this passage by saying, who is wise among you? That isn't just concerning leaders. There are many people who would consider themselves wise or who other would consider wise who uh, are not leaders. And we all know that it isn't just the leaders of a church that can foment dissension within the body of Christ. Uh, just average parishioners can do that just, just fine. So I believe that uh, this is aimed squarely at all believers. So beginning at verse uh, 13 into verse 18, and Angela, I need to tell you that I didn't get my little clicker, so uh, I'm going to be dependent upon you today for this. So verses 13 through 18, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So you can see here how James's concern is peace, that we live at peace with one another. And he begins by saying, who is wise and understanding among you? 
and this is, I mean, this is not quite spiritual trash talk, but essentially what James is saying is, if you think you're wise, show it. Prove it by what you do, by a life of humility and good deeds. Wisdom, James told us back in chapter 1, is something that all Christians should desire and we should even ask God for. However, James is telling us here that anyone who might pride himself in his wisdom better listen up. Uh, and he, he's going to give them some pretty harsh words. Because he says true wisdom isn't about being able to spout theology. Notice that, that James does not say, who is wise and understanding among you? Show it by your Bible memory verses or by your ability to exegete Daniel. He does not say that. It's very practical. Um, wisdom is very practical. He says, who is wise among you? Show it by your humility and your good deeds. Show it by the way you live. That reminds us earlier in James when James said, you say, you know, you have, or one may say, I have faith, I have deeds. He says, I'll show you my faith by my deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Here he is saying that show your faith by what you do. Demonstrate, not demonstrate your faith, demonstrate your wisdom by what you do. The wording here um, connotes a lifestyle. It's not, it's, it's a way of living. It's, a, it's a, an ongoing condition of the heart. A way of life that is humble and consistently walks in the works that God has for us to do. Which reminds me of Ephesians 2.10 which says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. We were created to live this way. So clearly James is telling us two things in this passage. He's saying that true wisdom produces good works and true wisdom produces humility. Humility actually in ancient um, times was not a very prized characteristic. Oftentimes people were looked down on. I don't think that's uh, too different than our culture today. Uh, we talk about somebody being a proud man. He's a proud man as if that was a good thing. It isn't necessarily a good thing. Humility is seeing God for who he really is. He is holy, he is righteous, he is just, he is loving, and on and on. But humility is also seeing ourselves as we really are. We are broken, we are fallen, we are completely helpless apart from Christ. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do Nothing. Nothing. The response of everyone in Scripture that has seen God for who he really is is much the same, from Job to Isaiah to John. In Revelation, John says he saw Jesus glorified, and he said, I fell on my face as though I were a dead man. There's not anyone that's standing up to God and saying, hey, you look here. No, when it, people see God for who he really is, just as Isaiah did, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. They fall face first before him. That is humility, seeing God for who we really are and how sinful and broken we are compared to him. Now, in verse, verses 14 through 16, Paul, or Paul, James is going to, I'm not going to stop doing that, am I? No, I'm not, no. Uh, James is going to talk about this false wisdom that is the antithesis of a true wisdom. 
Rather than humility, false wisdom displays bitter envy and selfish ambition. These are contrary to true godly wisdom. And these people that, that are priding themselves in such wisdom are living a lie. Because they're claiming to have wisdom and wisdom that comes from God. But at the same time, they are living in an unwise, even unspiritual way. That word for selfish ambition, um, I believe I wrote it in your notes, is erythria. Did I write that down there? Yeah. And uh, it's a very rare word. And in fact, the only place that, that it was used before this, that we know of, before the New Testament, before this, was found in the writings of Aristotle. And when Aristotle used it, this is how he used uh, the word to describe, quote, the narrow partisan zeal of factional, greedy politicians of his day. That sounds about right, doesn't it? But this kind of selfish ambition is not, uh, the, the politicians don't corner the market on that kind of selfish ambition. It too often creeps into the church where people want power or prestige or notoriety from their service within the church. Or sometimes they just want what they want. I don't like that color. I don't like this carpet, and I'm going to throw a fit until you change it. Sometimes they just want what they want. Um, there is a, a selfish ambition, however, that wants to be known as one of the pillars of the church or wants to be one of the prominent members of the church and get, get um, notoriety for that. Such ambition does not come. From God, James tell us, tells us. And then he says, if you're going to boast about this, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Don't take pride in that. There's not that sinful. It's unspiritual. Don't take pride in it. To do so, to take pride in that kind of wisdom, as, we, as I just said, is to live a lie. Is to try to claim we have wisdom when in truth we don't. We are selfish and arrogant. And James very clearly says what the origin is of this wisdom. It is earthly as opposed to heavenly. It is unspiritual as opposed to spiritual. And it is from Satan as opposed to being from God. The proof of this is found in the fruit of this kind of wisdom, quotation marks. The fruit of it is envy and selfish ambition that leads to disorder and sin. That word for disorder is another form of a word we've seen before in James, which is double-minded. Remember when he talked about the double-minded man, he said he is unstable in all he does. He's saying that instability leads to instability within the whole church, to unstableness, that, that the person and the community are in disarray. They are unstable. They are restless. James is painting a very vivid picture here of chaos and disunity within the church. Further, he is warning them where such chaos leads, to rampant sin. How many times have we seen prominent pastors, prominent leaders within the church fall because of their own arrogance, their own selfish desires, their own ambition? How many times... Have we seen fellow church members fall for the same things? How many times have I fallen standing in front of the entire cheer cheering section for Cornerstone Christian School? 
because of my own pride and arrogance. We are, none of us, immune to this. And I think that's part of James's point. Then in 17 and 18, James tells us the fruit of true wisdom, as opposed to this false wisdom he's just described. Let me tell you what comes from true wisdom. Um, because true wisdom is identified by the quality of life it produces, just as false wisdom is. And he says it is, first of all, pure. It is blameless. It is innocent. And out of that purity comes the rest of what he talks about. That blamelessness, that uprightness produces the rest of this. That purity is expressed when we are peace-loving, when we are considerate, when we are submissive. Those qualities, you may notice, are the exact opposite of selfish ambition and envy. These characteristics describe a person who is willing to yield to others, not one who is insisting on one's own way, not one that's saying it's my way or the highway. It, that is a person who says, you know what? I, I don't have to have my way. I'm willing to listen to you. I'm willing to yield to you. I'm willing to prefer you over myself. He also says that such wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. I, I love the definition of mercy I read this week, that it's, it's compassion that leads to action. Too often what we feel is not mercy, it's pity. Pity is a feeling, and we can, we can assuage that, we can get rid of that really, oh, that's too bad, and then go on with our lives. That's not mercy. It's pity, it's not mercy. Mercy is compassion that leads to action. It is impartial, which is one of the things James commanded us to be. And it is sincere. Those last two, impartial and sincere, taken together, they mean they are stressing that we are to have a single-minded, undivided commitment to God. We are not to be double-minded in our devotion to God. We are to be single-minded in our devotion to God, which is a point that James has made throughout this letter. Now, he talks about this harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Again, we see, and throughout this passage, we've seen how important peace is to James, that, that the, the believers live with one another in peace, and, and that the community would have, uh, of believers would live together that way. But uh, he talks about this harvest of righteousness. Now, James could be saying that peacemakers produce a harvest of righteousness, or he could be saying that peacemakers receive a harvest of righteousness, probably uh, from God. Given the context of what he's saying, he, the harvest of righteousness, he's probably saying that peacemakers um, produce a harvest of righteousness. But then what is the harvest of righteousness? In Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, that phrase almost always means the harvest that is righteousness. In other words, conduct that is pleasing to God, righteous living. So James is saying that those who sow peace, those who plant peace, reap conduct that is pleasing to God. When we submit our lives to God, dying to ourselves and living by the power of the Holy Spirit, our lives look curiously 
like what James has just described. Pure, peaceful, submissive, considerate. When we live for ourselves and for our own selfish pleasure and ambition, the result is discord and chaos and anger and envy. The righteous life that God desires for us cannot be produced in an environment of ambition and anger. It can only flourish in an atmosphere of peace. And both conditions, both this false wisdom and true wisdom, have ramifications for whatever communities in which we live, at home, at work, at church, because we live in community everywhere. And that's the point that James is about to tackle. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, this is a continuation of the same theme of peacemaking. Only now it's going to be lived out in community. The fruit of godly wisdom is a righteousness that produces peaceful, godly relationships. So James is going to take these same sorts of characteristics good, uh, for the good wisdom and for the bad wisdom and apply them to relationships. The fruit that was primarily individual in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 3 is now borne out and drawn out for the Christian community in chapter 4. So he's not changing the topic, he's just shifting the focus. And it is that selfish desire, that selfish ambition, that arrogance described in verses 13 through 18 that brings about the contentious relationships within the church. Now, this first, uh, not the first verse, oh, go back, thank you. The second verse here, uh, the, the NIV actually, the, the interpretation of the NIV is unusual. Most English translations have a parallelism here uh, and, and translate it differently. Uh, and I think that that, that is what, the, um, what James is driving at. Let me give you this interpretation that I, that I think makes more sense. Uh, what James is essentially saying is you want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. So his point here is that, the, uh, that the, they are it is their frustrated, selfish desire that is destroying relationships within the church. They want what they want. And they don't care what that means for other people. And that is creating contentious relationships within the church. And it has a way of doing it, doesn't, doesn't it? Selfishness has a way of doing that. But what does he mean here when he says you kill? Seriously, are these people killing one another over this? You know, what kind of carpet we have or whatever? Um, I think what James is probably saying is he's warning them of what could happen, of where this could lead, um, that it could lead to violence or worse if, they, uh, if their selfish ambition and their, de and their desires and their arrogance is left unchecked. And then he says you want something, but you don't get it. Well, what do they want? What is it that they want? He could just be speaking in generally. You, whatever it is you want, you don't get it. Um, but given the context, he's probably speaking more specifically about that kind of wisdom, 
that kind of false wisdom that leads to power and prestige and recognition. That's what they want. They want to have that sort of worldly significance. And James has already told them that this isn't real wisdom at all. This isn't godly wisdom. It's unspiritual. It's from Satan even. They want to lead the church, but they do not possess the kind of wisdom that will enable them to do that. They will only fracture the church further if given the opportunity to lead. And then he says, you ask and you don't get it because you ask with the wrong motives. You know, it's sometimes we ask for things and we think they're good and God says no and we don't know why God says no. And it maybe is that we're asking for the wrong reasons. That we think it would be really good for us to have this and God thinks otherwise. I don't think that that's always why God says no. Sometimes I think God says no because it's not in our best interest even though we think it is. Sometimes God says no, and we don't know. But tr surely, a God who is sovereign can have reasons for saying no that we don't understand, but he does. Um, so sometimes, as James tells us, we're asking with wrong motives. So we ask, and we're told no, because our motives are false. And then, James is going to end this passage with a call to spiritual wholeness and really, honestly, a rebuke in verses 4 through 10. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be, afraid of the, be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Could you go back one to the, um, thank you very much, perfect. There's a lot here, uh, but let's begin with this part where he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. This is a really abrupt change, particularly after over and over in scriptures, he said, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, my dear brothers and sisters. And now he turns to them and says, you adulterous people. That's really harsh. So in the midst of his exhortation on speech and envy and divisiveness, James gives this impassioned plea for his readers to turn from their worldly ways and submit wholeheartedly with a single soul to their gracious but jealous God. Dr. Doug Moose says, here, if anywhere, we find the heart of James's letter. Now, this passage is very much connected to the Old Testament. And, and actually, he doesn't say you adulterous people. He says you adulteresses. It's in the feminine form. And the reason he does that is because he's comparing them to Israel uh, and Israel's idolatry, idolatry and rebellion against God. And that was often referred to 
in the Old Testament as adultery and as idolatry. He's saying that by seeking friendship with the world, they are committing a type of adultery, a type of idolatry. When we put anyone or anything ahead of God, that is, that constitutes unfaithfulness to him. Just as if I put any man or relationship with any man ahead of my husband, that would be unfaithfulness. When we put anyone or anything ahead of God, we set that thing up as our God. It becomes an idol, and we become idolaters. Those are harsh words, but I think if we try to lessen their impact, if we try to soft-sell them, then we lose the truth that God has for us in these verses. So how were James's readers befriending the world then? He's given us a litany already in this letter. They were discriminating against others. They were discriminating against the poor and they were favoring the wealthy in chapter 2. They were speaking negatively about each other in chapter 3. They were seeking power and prestige and envying one another, as we just read in the second part of chapter 3. They were pursuing destructive pleasure, as he's just said in the first three verses of chapter Sound contemporary? Yeah, we still do those things today. Ladies, God will, will not tolerate any rival. And when we behave in a worldly manner, we show our allegiance to be to the world rather than to God. That should scare us, shouldn't it? Now, verse 5 is, uh, I covered this in the lesson, so I'm not going to spend much time of it. It's, it's a difficult verse, but what James is saying is that God is a jealous God, and he will not tolerate idolatry. And that is a truth that fits not only with the context of this passage, but with the whole of Scripture. In fact, the, the uh, New Revised Standard Version of the Bible uh, has this translation of verse 5. God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He, he is jealous for our wholehearted devotion. Now that sounds like a very high expectation, doesn't it? And it is. But James has good news for us. He tells us that what God demands, he supplies. His grace is more than sufficient. Dr. Moose says God's grace completely is completely adequate to meet the requirements imposed upon us. Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire, and he is. Our God is a consuming fire, but he is also merciful and gracious and loving. St. Augustine said that God gives what he demands, and it's a good thing, because we'd be sunk if he didn't. But that grace that he gives us always requires a response. It always demands a response. And James tells us here the only response that makes sense is humility. And he quotes Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And then directly flowing out of that quote from Proverbs, he's going to give a series of commands in verses 7 through 10. 
He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So all of this flows directly from God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. And in this series of commands, the first thing he says is submit yourselves to God. To submit to God means to place ourselves under his lordship, his complete lordship, and give him all of who we are. It is com to commit to obeying him in all things, to serve him and him alone. And the rest of these commands flow from that submission. If we are submitting to God, we will resist the devil because we cannot simultaneously follow God and Satan. It's completely incongruous. You might as well say, I'm driving north-south. You can't do it. And so if we are submitting to God and we are following him, we will resist the devil. And guess what? He'll flee. He will flee. A funny thing happens when we don't give in to our selfish desires. They lose their power. And Satan flees. I've, I'm sure you've heard this saying before. I, I've heard it before, seen it several places. I, I really, and this is true for me, I want to be the kind of woman that when my feet hit the floor, Satan says, oh crap, she's up. That's what I want. And we do not need to fear Satan. He has already been defeated. He has no power over us. I just heard, uh, actually yesterday, this quote from a, a Martin Luther King speech where he said, fear came knocking up at the door. Faith answered, and there was nobody there. When we have faith, when we are submitting to God, there's no fear. We do not need to fear Satan. And then he says, as we submit to God, we will come near to him. That only makes sense if we are following him, we will come near to him. Now, he may be meaning come near and worship, but given what he's about to say, I think that James is saying that we need to come near, draw near in repentance. When we repent, we always find the open arms of our Father drawing us near, and forgiving us. James is underscoring in these verses the seriousness of our sin. As we submit and draw near to God, we come to see both the holiness of our God and the sinfulness of our own hearts and the seriousness of that sin. Ponder for a moment what it cost God to free us from that sin. This is a good time of year to ponder that. That should cause us to mourn. It's what Dr. Moo calls a radical repentance, but truly it is the only kind of repentance that makes sense. A number of years ago, and I, I, Josh may have been in high school, he may have even been in junior high, um, uh, the church showed the Passion of the Christ down in the sanctuary, and I had never seen it. And it got to the point, um, even before the crucifixion, where Jesus was being scourged. And I began to weep. And, and I began to shake. I was weeping so much. And, and Josh just engulfed me in his arms. And I just bawled on his shoulder. Because I thought, my, my sin did that 
My sin did that to my Savior. And he loved me enough to do that, to go through that for me. How, how can I take my sin lightly in light of that? How can I say it's no big deal? When my sin put Jesus on the cross. And then in verse 10, he comes back to humility. Just like he said, submit yourselves to God. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord. Humbling ourselves before God means to recognize our own spiritual poverty. That we can do nothing apart from Christ. That we are in desperate need of God. And therefore, we submit to him. This is closely related to Jesus' teaching. Uh, in, math, in, excuse me, in Luke 18, 14, uh, Jesus said, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is Doug Moo's response to that, he says, or, or what he says about this. It reminds us that we gain spiritual vitality and victory not through our own strength or effort, but through giving ourselves completely to the Lord. When we try to exalt ourselves by relying on our own abilities, status, or money, we meet with inevitable failure and even condemnation. God humbles us. But when we humble ourselves before God in repentance, he will lift us up. He will forgive us completely and remember our sins no more. Well, just to, uh, a few minutes here to apply all of this. A number of years ago, I wrote uh, a talk that I gave to, um, at first to FCA, to teenagers and, and some other places. And I entitled it Dun Dunkirk versus, versus D-Day, using the two World War II battles of Dunkirk and D-Day to illustrate something. And <clears throat> Dunkirk was one of the um, most embarrassing defeats. Uh, the, the Allies tried to spin it a little bit, but, you know, <laughs> politicians always do that. Um, where the Germans came in and just surged in and took over the Netherlands and Belgium and started into France. Dunkirk was in France. And the Allies, at that point, the French and the English were trying to battle that. And the German blitzkrieg just, just demolished them. And had, uh, had, I almost called him Satan, close enough, had Hitler... <laughs> Uh, not gotten worried that everything was going to turn around in a minute uh, and, and told them to halt, told uh, the uh, Axis powers to halt, uh, they might have just won the war then. Uh, the Allies were that close to just, um, you know, giving in and, and surrendering. Um, so that halt allowed the Allies time to retreat. And they sent over, the British sent over a flotilla of not only British warships, but pleasure cruisers and yachts and uh, dinghies and whatever they could to try and get as many of those soldiers out as they could. And they got hundreds. It really was. It was this, this, this flotilla of, of boats. And they got out of there. They got out of Dodge. Uh, uh, to back, a number of them had to surrender to the Germans. But, but it, was a, it was a retreat. It was a, it was a complete retreat, an utter failure. Contrast that to uh, a little more than a year, two years later, um, maybe three, I can't remember exactly, but after the Americans joined, <laughs> uh, to D-Day. 
which was a tremendous victory and, and very close to where Dunkirk took place. And they stormed the beaches of, um, of Normandy and they began to take back the ground that the enemy had stolen. And when I first started writing this talk, what I was going to write was this sort of you know, win one for the Gipper speech where we need to take back ground in our culture that we've lost to Satan. And as I was writing it, I realized that that's not where the battle really is. The battle's here. And I need to take back ground that Satan has won in my own life um, rather than being so concerned about the culture. Last Sunday, Jeff Dart gave a wonderful sermon on Romans 2 where he said that Romans 2 calls us to look in the mirror of our lives and see ourselves honestly. James 3 and 4 does the same thing for us. James is telling us to hold up the mirror to our hearts and see ourselves as we truly are, fallen, broken, and deserving of condemnation. And then take that and see God as who he really is and see the sacrifice that God made for us to forgive us which underscores the enormity of God's love for us. It should overwhelm us. Um, when my mother died in 2010, I was at the graveside service, and I looked up, and um, I saw Steve and Becky Moltemeyer walking toward me. And Becky Moltemeyer has been probably the most important mentor in my life in these last 16 years. And that they would take time off of work to be there. You know, they didn't really know my mom. They were there for me. And I just remember seeing them and doing this. I was so humbled. I was so grateful that they would be there. That was my natural reaction to seeing them there. Here's the beautiful thing about this picture. That when we come to God in true repentance, understanding the enormity of our sin, when I come to God, in true repentance, understanding the enormity of my sin, but also understanding even more the enormous love God has for me that he would send his son to the cross to cover that sin. It causes, or at least it should cause me, to bow my head in humble gratitude. And when I do that, God is faithful. Every time I lift my chin and say, my child, Amy, you are forgiven. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Praise God. How wonderful, amazing is that? What other possible response makes any sense other than to submit my life completely to his lordship? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Father, that although you are a jealous God, although you are a consuming fire, and although the requirement may seem strong, it's already been fulfilled by your Son and by your grace. We only need submit to it. May we, Father, commit to doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, ladies.